morning. How are you? Hey, my, for those of you who are, are new here, just visiting, my name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors, and we're just really grateful to be able to worship with you guys today. Uh, I know that some of you are probably looking around going, well, I don't see Lee here today. And I just want to give you, uh, just let you know that he is on sabbatical. I know that um, over the past year or so, he's kind of hinted that at some point, God is bringing him and Mary to the point where he's ready to retire or, or move. And so he is in this process of just thinking through and praying through what does the next season look like? How long is that going to be and so forth? And so the elders and I just felt like this was a good time to say, hey, why don't you take a month and really seek God? He's going to be in the area that means that if you see him at a store or something, it's okay to say hi. You don't have to pretend he doesn't exist. It's not like seeing one of your teachers outside of school and going, you don't belong here, right? Um, also, he will be here for those Thursday prayer nights. So if you do want to see Lee and Mary, they're going to be around. And they will, that is one thing that they really don't want to be missing is they are spending this month in prayer. So um, again, I encourage you guys to come this Thursday night and pray and they'll be there. But uh, I would just encourage you over the course of this month, anytime you think about our church, pray for Lee and Mary. Pray for myself as, I, as this mantle right now for this month has kind of passed to me. And it's a big target. That we are pray for our church as we are in transition. And we don't know exactly what that looks like, but we'll be talking more about that in the coming months and more specifically in January when we unveil our new vision that we're really excited about. So those are just a couple of, of housekeeping things I wanted to let you know about. And now we're going to transition. Um, about a month ago, we began a series where we, we began looking at this, this question that a guy asked Jesus. He was an expert of the law, and he came up to Jesus, and he said, okay, I want you to basically uh, sum up the meaning of life into one statement. What, what is the most important commandment there could be? And Jesus said, okay, I, it's not one, it's two. Love the Lord your God with everything, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, basically all that you are, love God, and then love your neighbor as you love yourself. Everything hinges on those two things. That sums up the whole heart of God for his people. In other words, we were created in God's image. God is love, therefore we were created to love others. And so over this month, we've been looking at ways that we can tangibly love our neighbors. We've been looking at some specific groups of neighbor that we would not normally think about and how we could love them. We've looked at so far loving people overcoming our prejudice to love people who are different from us or see the world differently than we do. We've looked at loving those who are impoverished. We've looked at loving uh, the next generation and investing our faith into the next generation, even if they are not our flesh and blood children, they're still all of our kids. And then last week, Lee looked at um, loving those orphans in our midst caring for them and, and even loving those parents and grandparents and others who have stepped in to fill the gap and to raise up children um, in their home and investing time and energy into that. This week we're going to look at another uh, really important aspect, another crew of people that are right under our nose, and that is loving the lonely. And um, Loneliness is one of those things that, that we see right from the very beginning is in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, which is a, passage, or a place I love to go over and again, because those first three chapters of Genesis are so foundational for every, understanding all of Scripture, understanding what we're here for. 
And as you look at Genesis 1 and 2, you see God kind of depicted as this divine artist, right? He's got the canvas of the world, and it's a blank canvas, and he begins to paint on it. And he's getting involved, and he's, he's speaking the, the stars into place, and he's speaking the world and beginning to form it from water over here and land over here. And from time to time, he'll step back and go, oh, that, that looks good. And then he gets back in there, and he keeps going, right? And now we're creating trees and animals and, and fish and birds. And then he steps back and goes, oh, that's really good too. And then he goes back in and he creates man. And on, the, on that sixth day, he gets down on his hands and his knees and he, he gets his hands dirty and he forms the man out of the dust of the earth and breathes the breath of life into his lungs. And then he steps back. And for the very first time in history, God finds something that he's not pleased with. He says, it's not good for what? For man to be alone. We were created for community. We were created to do life in relationship. First with God and then with one another. And when we are not in community, when we are isolated, when we try to do it by ourselves, and by the way, as as we talked about a couple weeks ago, we live in what sociologists are calling the single most individualistic nation in history. We have this knee-jerk reaction thinking, I am on my own, I am an island, I need to just care for myself, or at the very most, my, my just core family. And we begin to isolate from other people, and yet we were created for community. And when we are not in community, when we are not walking with other people, it not only affects our quality of life, it actually can affect our health. The the University of Chicago did a study on loneliness, what kind of effects that it can have on them. And these are just three of the, the many things that they discovered through this study. They found that lonely individuals report higher levels of perceived stress than non lonely people, even when those individuals are exposed to the same stressors or even when they're relaxing. There's still a higher level of stress hormone in their body when somebody perceives themselves to be lonely. Secondly, they found that loneliness causes the the body to produce greater levels of stress hormone and this increases blood pressure. This not only puts more wear and tear on our hearts but also on our blood vessels. Thirdly, they found that loneliness destroys the quality and efficiency of sleep so that it is less restorative, both physically and psychologically. In other words, loneliness is more than a quality of life issue. It literally is a health issue. And I want you to think for a moment. Who is somebody that is lonely in your life? Or a group of people that you would consider to be the lonely? My guess is, as you consider that question, your knee-jerk reaction is to probably think of somebody else, right? Somebody outside of yourself. Maybe a a widow or a widower. Maybe one of the orphans that we talked about last week or a homeless person. But what I want to suggest to all of us this morning is that this issue of loneliness is far greater than we realize and it touches far more individuals than than just a scatter select few. This is one of the greatest epidemics in our culture. We find that loneliness is something that permeates 
the American culture in ways that it doesn't permeate other cultures. And it's not something that, that takes place solely when somebody is isolated. In fact, quite often, the lonely are people who are surrounded in groups of people. You could be sitting in here this morning, surrounded by a hundred plus other people, and yet feel lonely. The picture I get is somebody who is, is floating in a raft on the ocean, dying of thirst, at the same time surrounded by water, and just not able to take a drink of it because it's not fresh. That's the kind of epidemic we live in. Uh, what social scientists are recognizing is there's something, there's a coin that they've termed to talk about the epidemic in America. They're calling it relational poverty. You understand regular poverty, right? Regular poverty is I don't have enough finances or resources to care for my needs. Relational poverty is like that. We were created for genuine relationship. And when we don't find that, that life-giving type of relationship, we may have plenty of money. We may have plenty of food. We may have a roof over our head, a car in the garage. Yet what we are really hungering for, what we're really dying for, is the very thing that we were created for, genuine, life-giving relationship. Well, why is this such an epidemic in America? Social scientists, uh, um, basically it's just people who study our culture, have, have suggested four main reasons that they, these are theories that they have as to why this is becoming a greater and greater issue in our culture. I'm sure that there are hundreds of others that we could point to, but here are the four big ones that they identified. Number one is the breakdown in families. We are seeing more divorces in our culture today than we've ever seen in history. And when a marriage breaks down, it's more than just the children who suffer. Because as you begin to divide up who gets the house, who gets the car, who gets the whatever, one of the things that begins to be fractured is the relational um, community that you're a part of. Who gets the friends? Who, who do I continue to confide in when we've shared these individuals in the past? Who can I lean on? Where do I go to church? Because, I mean, it's not like we're going to go to the same church together but separately. That's just not going to work. And so one of the big impediments to deep-seated community is the breakdown in marriages. A second one that they identify is the fact that we are in a transient culture, that people do not stay in one place for a long period of time. It used to be, and some of you guys probably saw this, it used to be that we would see entire generations of families grow up in the same area, sometimes even in the same house, in a community where people knew not just your name, but knew your family's name. You got picked up by a police officer. The police officer knew who you were, drove you home rather than driving you down to the precinct and said, here you go, you deal with them, right? Knew your dad, and that was, that was more scary than going to stand before some judge. Today, we see people jumping from place to place to place. If you get three to five years in a particular place or in a particular house, that was a good run. 
And sometimes we just get to the point where we're like, I'm, I'm tired of this. I want somewhere else. I want to live in a new place. I'm ready for a little bit bigger, a little bit different. The issue is that when you are living in that kind of a transient state where you're moving from place to place to place, you never have time to put down roots and develop deep, abiding relationships with the people around you. You're constantly doing those initial getting to know you things. So the breakdown of marriages, kind of the... the increased mobility of our culture. Thirdly is our busyness. Now I'm sure you guys recognize this, right? We have thing after thing that demands our attention, demands us to take care of it. We've got children who, who need to be shuttled from this thing to that thing. We've got demands at work. We've got demands at home. We've got things that we've got to get accomplished. And in the process, we don't have time to simply sit and have a conversation quite often we're not even taking the time to have people into our homes or being able to go over to other people's homes. I know for Kathy and I, we're like, man, we want our home to be a place that is a sanctuary for people to come and hang out. Nine times out of ten, we're so busy and so exhausted from the week that when we have a free night, we just want to veg out and watch some cooking show that doesn't even require too much mental energy to to kind of engage in a storyline. It's like I just want to see somebody cook something and pretend I can smell it and eat it. I want to watch them eat it and hear them describe what they're tasting, right? It's awesome. And we're isolated. I mean, think about the fact that one of the things that has affected this, and I'm just throwing this in, they haven't pointed it out, but one of the things that's affected is is central heating and cooling. No longer do people need to go sit on their porches and relax. We just sit in our homes or in our cars. We drive our air-conditioned cars, unless you here here in Eastside Costa Mesa, most of you don't have air conditioning. But... But the more we just stay insulated in our homes, driving in our insulated little cars into our garages, they close down and we stay inside and then we wonder why we don't know our neighbors. But we're busy. And then fourthly, and this one might seem a little bit counterintuitive, but one of the biggest impediments or one of the biggest things that is stirring up a sense of loneliness in our culture is the rise of social media. Now, on the surface, we go, well, social media has helped me stay connected. I, I've got a friend, Jessica, who I grew up with. I uh, got a chance to marry her and her husband, what, like 11 years ago almost? Almost 10. Okay. So I just had kids, so it makes time seem like it's a lot longer. Um, so almost 10 years, we've gotten to do life with her, but the only way that we really get to stay connected is because I'm seeing what's going on with her and her husband and, and her kid on social media and so forth, right? So it helps us stay connected, and yet, the type of connection that we have there is superficial at best. It's almost like eating cotton candy for dinner. Tastes good, sates our appetite for a moment, but it can't nourish us. And then we start feeling those, those lonely pangs of feeling kind of alone and isolated, like people don't really know us or care about us, and so what do we do? Well, I'm going to throw out a fleece here. I'm going to take a selfie or I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to look through my pictures I've taken. I'm going to throw one up there and I'm going to say what I'm doing right now. I'm going to take a picture of my food or I'm going to go looking for some really great quote that I think is really profound and I'm going to throw it out there. And now I'm going to check back every five minutes to see who noticed. <laughs> Guilty, right? Who liked it? But now I'm past likes because likes are easy. Likes are just, you know, I want to see who actually commented on it because that means somebody's engaged with it and wanted to make a thought. What did they write? 
And in the process, that's, it, it's, it is to me what it used to be when I was walking through my high school or my college quad. And I would walk, and I, I knew exactly where my friends were. They're sitting at a table over here. And I would walk through the quad with my backpack, looking out of the corner of my eye, wondering, are they going to notice me? Are they going to say hi? Are they going to go, Eric, come over here? Because that would mean that I matter to them. And sometimes that would happen. Other times I would walk all the way through the quad and walk right out and go, I'm such a loser. They didn't even care. Right? And we do the same thing with social media. It is, it is, it is pseudo-relationship. The other wicked part about social media is it actually increases our sense of loneliness because we see the 5% of people's lives that they want to kind of let people know about. We see some friends hanging out with other friends and going, I wasn't a part of that. I have been isolated. And it makes us actually feel more alone. I, I, I feel that all the time. It's like, oh, I didn't get invited to that. Awesome. Or, wow, they're on another vacation and I, you know, awesome. I'm washing dishes. I've got a basket of socks overflowing that I don't even want to take the time to go through right now. And they're in Hawaii, jerks. That's why I wear sandals all the time. Because I don't want to deal with, because I can't find socks that match. I just want to point out, I took a little bit of extra time this morning, all right? So, why is our culture so lonely? Well, some of the reasons are a breakdown in marriages, a, a, a transient type of culture where we're moving from place to place, busyness, and pseudo-relationship through social media that gives us a taste but really can't sate that deep-seated hunger for genuine community. And then we come to church and we go, okay, I'm hungry, for, I'm starving to belong. Feed me, right? And the truth of the matter is, this community and everyone like it is intended by God, it was created by God to be a place where we can belong, where we can be known, where we as imperfect and messed up as we are, can be surrounded by other imperfect people and we can love one another, albeit imperfectly. But we get to be part of a family. A family, we are, we are blood related by the blood of the Lamb. And although we may be dysfunctional at times, and I'm not going to pretend we're not, this is a place that I hope that we can be seen for who we are, we can be in process, and we can be accepted by other imperfect people. That said, no church is defined by its building. When we talk about church, we're not talking about this edifice. This is just a place that we gather. We could gather down at Triangle Square. We could gather down at the beach. We would still be the church because it's the people that God has brought that is the church. And he has called his church to be his representatives and to shape the kind of culture, the kind of community that we all long for. And so what are some ways that we can love our neighbors that are outside the walls of this church in the same way that we ourselves would like to be loved? Right? I think back to that moment when I was walking through the quad looking out of the corner of my eye, going, are they going to notice me? 
You know what I think was going on? There may have been other people, and I don't want to think too highly of myself to think that they were thinking about me, but there may have been other people going, I wonder if Eric's going to notice us. I wonder if other people notice me. Because we're not the only ones who are thinking these things. There are other people around who are just as hungry and starving for relationship. Just as, uh, just as vulnerable in their insecurity. And we have an opportunity as people of God who find our identity not through what other people say about us, but, about way, but by what He says about us. We have an opportunity to change our culture and to love people, and to create a culture where we say, I'm not alone. I know that I am noticed. I know that I matter. So, this morning, I want to look at three tangible ways that we, the people of God, can love our community, love our neighbors the way we would want to be loved, and particularly love those who are lonely. Okay, you want to find out? Oh, good. I'm so glad. Excellent. This is the interactive portion. All right. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Again, we're going to look at three different postures that we can take to love our neighbors, many of whom are lonely. In Matthew 8, one of the ways that we can love the lonely is through physical touch. All the husbands are going, amen. I'm lonely. (laughs) And that's not at all what we're talking about, so I apologize for getting your hopes up. Just making sure you're awake. Matthew 8. Jesus has just come off of giving the most famous sermon in history, and we call it the Sermon on the Mount. There were thousands of people that are gathered listening to his words, and as he walks down off the, the, the mount, He is thronged by people, some of whom are his disciples. Other people are just along for the ride. They're those hangers-on that are going, man, he is the flavor of the week, and so I'm going to just kind of hang with him for as long because, hey, this is going to be fun. He talks differently than most people. He he talks with authority. This is interesting. So in chapter 8 of Matthew, verse 1, we read that Jesus came down from the mountainside, and large crowds followed him. And a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord... If you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, for most of us, we know this story, so we kind of already start filling in all the blanks. But I want us for a moment to step back and understand the culture, to understand the context of what was going on. In that day and age, leprosy was a big deal. It was something that was very common because leprosy was one of the most easily contracted diseases that you could get. It's a skin disease that begins to, it's a bacteria that goes throughout your body and begins to attack nerve endings. It would actually deaden the pain in your nerve endings so that we we think that people's like skin would fall off and stuff. That's not actually what would happen. What would happen is they would lose all feeling in their appendages. So then they would injure themselves and not even realize it. You have your foot in the fire and not even realize it's getting scalded and so people would begin to lose fingers and toes and arms and legs through this. It would also create uh, these big white splotchy growths on the uh, lesions on their skin making them look deformed. It was a horrific skin disease and one that was so easily contracted that lepers were treated quite literally as lepers. Just stay away from me. We don't want anything to do with you. As a leper would walk down the street, 
because it was so easy to contract this, they were required by both law and social custom to announce that they were unclean. So as they're walking down the street, they would have to yell, Unclean! Unclean! And as they're walking down the street, it would be like watching a dog out on the beach running towards a flock of seagulls, right? As the dog gets closer, the seagulls just start peeling away and moving out of the way. That's exactly what you would see as they're walking down the street, is the people in front of them just begin to part and move as far away from them as possible. Because who wants to get leprosy? From a theological standpoint, if you even so much as touched a leper, you would be considered ceremonially unclean, which would mean that you would not be able to go into the temple to worship God until you had ceremonially cleansed yourself and proven that you had not contracted leprosy yourself. It was a big deal. So the fact that this man has the audacity to interrupt Jesus as he's walking with his entourage down from the mountainside. He's the rock star of the moment. And this leper has the audacity to get down in the dirt and go, Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now notice what he said also. He didn't say, if you're able, you can make me clean. If you are willing. He had such faith that Jesus could do it. The question is, Jesus, would you be willing to do that? And look how Jesus responds. Verse 3. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately this man was cleansed of his leprosy. What I find so fascinating is that Jesus chose to touch this man because all throughout Jesus' ministry, he's already proven his capability of healing people with the words of his lips he the man who was paralyzed when they dug through the roof he said your sins are forgiven he said arise and walk and take your mat the man was cured of his paralysis through jesus's words no touching involved jesus cast out demons with his words no touching involved jesus raised a man from the dead with his words And yet when he's faced with a guy with leprosy, he reaches out and puts his hand on him. I can only imagine what the people behind him, this entourage, are thinking because he has literally just made himself ceremonially unclean. May have contracted a nice little skin disease to go with it as he touches this guy. They go, why did he choose in this instance to touch this man? And I would like to suggest that the reason he did it is because Jesus understood that his greatest ailment was not his leprosy. It was his relational poverty. Sure, his skin may be falling off. He he may not have any feeling in his arms or legs. He may be ridiculously deformed. But what he's suffering from most is the fact that he has been isolated from the very people that he was created to do life with. And in Jesus touching this man, he treated him for the first time in probably a long time as a human being. And he said, I, I notice you, and I care about you. 
There's something powerful about physical touch. I would suspect, in fact, that there are some people in here that come back week after week, not primarily because you love the worship so much or because you love the teaching so much. You come back because this may be the only place all week long where somebody looks you in the eyes, smiles at you, maybe puts an arm around you, shakes your hand, or gives you a high five. This is the only place in the week where somebody notices you and treats you like you matter. Treats you like they're actually happy to see you. And that keeps you coming back. Guys, that is one of my greatest joys. And I'm a hugger, unapologetically, okay? And I know that there are some of you who you like your personal space, and I want to be respectful of that. I do not want to force hugs upon you, but they're good for you. And my hope is that we as a community would be a place, we as a people, as a church, whether it's here or elsewhere, would be a people who remind people, I see you. I notice you. I care about you. And I'm here. A hand on the shoulder for somebody who's grieving. Shaking somebody's hand, looking them in the eyes. I'm working on that with Ethan right now. When you say hello to somebody, look them in the eyes. A hug around the shoulders. Respectfully, being aware of people's physical place, Being appropriate, okay? Can we just be appropriate in it? But at the same time, can we not be afraid to treat people as human beings? Because our touch is one of the most powerful ways of communicating love to someone. Secondly, one of the ways that we can love people is by listening to them. Turn with me to Job chapter 2. If you go back into the Old Testament and you hit Psalms, go left. It's the book right before Psalms. So we talked about loving people through touch, but we also can tangibly love people by actually listening to them. And I, I would suspect that a lot of the time when we talk to people, I catch myself doing this all the time, a lot of the time, I'm not fully listening to what they're saying. I'm beginning to formulate in the back of my mind what I'm going to say the moment they stop talking. Right? The moment you take a breath and give me a chance, I'm going to drop a dime of wisdom upon you and you will be like, oh, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. Right? Feeling the spirit in here. I am tragically white and I apologize. That was bad. Okay, so, so we begin to love people by listening to them, actually listening to them, not just pretending that we're listening to them and, and nodding our heads and dropping a uh-huh every once in a while. And husbands are going, well, what's, what's the problem with this, right? Because actually being heard is a way of telling somebody you matter. Actually hearing their heart, not just pretending you understand, not just thinking that you know where they're going, so you start going, okay, well, how can I fix this? Because that is my greatest impediment as a man. Is that when my wife starts telling me her heart, what she's doing is she's trying to say, here's who I am, here's where I'm at, here's what I'm feeling. And I'm trying to go, how can I make you stop feeling? How can I make it so that we can just go back to being able to watch our cooking show? Or I can go back to reading my book. Or I can just kind of go on with life. And I think that we have a lot that we can learn 
from our Hebrew um, brothers and sisters that came before us. In their culture, they had something called sitting Shiva. Sitting Shiva. It, it means literally sitting seven. Shiva is the word for seven. What they would do in their culture is that when somebody was hurting, when somebody was going through a trial or in pain, the community around them, family, friends, neighbors, would come around this person for seven days and literally sit with them. Not to fix their problem, not to give them all of the reasons why, what they need to do to fix it, to simply be there with them and allow them to be in process. And if that person wants to talk, then to talk. If that person doesn't want to talk, they just want to sit in silence, then that's okay. We're going to be with you. And we see this in, in Job chapter 2. We, you guys know the story. Basically, God one day um, has Satan come in and go, Hey, you know, people only follow you because of the blessings you give them. He goes, Really? Look at Job. He doesn't do that. He goes, Oh, yeah? Look at Job's life. You blessed him. All right, Satan, you really think that that's why he loves me? Fine. You can go ahead and let Job go through some things, but you can't take his life. And over the course of several weeks, Satan begins to strip the things in Job's life, the blessings away. He, he takes his health away. He takes his wealth away. He takes his children away. They're killed. And Job is left, this broken man with sores all over his body, sitting in sackcloth and covering his head in ashes, which is a way that they would just say, I have reached the lowest of the low and I am grieving. And in the end of chapter 2, we see Job sitting there and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar show up. And they see Job sitting in the dirt. And I'm just going to read from verse 12. When these three friends saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They had compassion on him and they began to weep for their friend. They tore their robes. They sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. <laughs> Admittedly, after those seven days ended, these three guys went into fix-it mode. Because it's ingrained in our DNA that we have to try to fix it. And they had seven long days to think about what they were going to say, right? But I love this picture. Here's a man who's hurting. And they just hurt with him. Here's a man grieving. What are they going to be able to say to him to make the grief of a father who has lost his children go away? What are they going to say to him that's going to make this man who is suffering more than he's ever experienced suffering snap out of it and be okay? Nothing. And so instead of saying anything, they sit with him. Now, in our culture, here's what I have found tends to happen. When we see somebody who's hurting, we have one of two responses. One response 
is move in and offer beautiful platitudes about how God is in the midst of it and you're going to get through this and you can do all things through Him who strengthens you and He'll never give you more than you can handle. Not actually in the Bible. He'll never let us be tempted more than we can handle. Thankfully, God will never give us more than He can handle. But I can guarantee you, all of us are going to experience more than we can handle in this life. And when we see somebody hurting, one of the things we want to do is just go kind of blanketed over with nice Christian platitudes that do nothing but make that person feel like they shouldn't feel what they're feeling. Oh, I just need to kind of get, get it all together, suck it up, swallow my grief so that you can feel better. That's one response. Another response is when we see that person hurting and grieving, we go, I don't have the slightest clue what to say to him. I'm going to give him some space, right? And I'm going to go back to my regularly scheduled life. And when, when that person's got it kind of back together, then I'm going to... I, they, he obviously wants his privacy because he's hurting. And I know that many of you in this, here this morning, when you have gone through something particularly painful, have probably felt like it was the most isolated time of your life because the people that you would have hoped to be able to lean upon were not there because they didn't know what to say to you. And they didn't want to go the first route of trying to just kind of say cheap Christian platitudes. But they also didn't know how to kind of enter into the awkwardness of your brokenness with you. So they just stayed away. I can, I can remember being in Job's shoes in a small way. About five years ago, when, when Kathy's water broke on a Thursday night, 11 weeks before, or actually 13 weeks before our son was due to be born. And we rushed her to the hospital, and I took her originally to the hospital we had planned on having him born at, and they said, we don't even know how to handle a child this age. Like, if he's going to be born this early, you need to be up at this hospital. So here I am, a father with one son at home that doesn't even know, he was asleep when this happened, doesn't even know the danger his mom and and his unborn brother is in. I've got a wife who's in physical danger. They're just trying to help her contractions to stop. At 11 o'clock at night, I found myself in a hospital I'd never been to before, sitting in the cafeteria, overwhelmed with the circumstances that just two hours before would have seemed like my worst nightmare. And now it's my reality. And in walks this guy, Jeremy King. He's a, a pastor in the area At most, he was an acquaintance. And he walks in because he had seen my basically Hail Mary prayer post on Facebook saying, please pray for my wife. We're going through this. And he felt compelled at 1030 at night to put clothes on, get in his car, and drive to this hospital to see somebody he really didn't know that well and just sit with him. That's exactly what he did. For the next two hours, he sat in that cafeteria, nobody else in there. And he just was with me. I talked a little bit. He didn't offer me any Christian platitudes about how God is in control and it's all going to be fine. He didn't make promises that were empty like my, your wife and your kid will be fine. He didn't know. He was just there. And he allowed me the freedom to feel the overwhelming swirl of emotions that I was going through. And I'm grateful 
for his willingness to enter into the messiness of my life that night because in that moment I didn't feel so alone. It was still overwhelming. It was still painful. It didn't change the fact that my wife and my son were in critical condition. But I wasn't alone in it. And that was a gift that he gave to me. My prayer, guys, is that we would be a church that is willing to lean into the messiness of life, not, not trying to paper it over, not trying to make the feelings go away, and not isolating people when they're hurting, but just enter into it and be with them and listen to them. Actually hear their heart and allow them to state their emotions. Okay, so... We love by touch. We love by listening and being present. And the third way that we love tangibly is through being interruptible. One last place we want to go to. Go with me back to the book of Matthew, chapter 20. We've already seen... I mean, remember earlier we talked about how we are a busy... People, we are constantly running from thing to thing to thing. Our, our, our time gets filled up. And I don't know about you, but a lot of times when God kind of taps me on the shoulder, kind of prods my heart and says, over there, that person's hurting. Look over there. That person's alone. That person feels, that person's sitting alone. That person is awkward. That person may be eating lunch alone. That person is having a tough day. Just look at their face. You can see it a lot of times my knee-jerk reaction is to go, well, I see that, but I haven't got time for that. Because I've got, and I start going through the laundry list of things I've got to do. And so I end up walking by or driving by, feeling a little bit of guilt, a little pang there. But honestly, I don't have time. And yet then I look at Jesus' life do you realize that what we read about in, in the New Testament, those four Gospels are predominantly about three years of his life, his three-year ministry, and he packed more into three years than I've packed into my 38 so far. He touched more lives than we could even begin to quantify. And one of the reasons he did that is because he was busy didn't mean that he couldn't also be interruptible. He was constantly interruptible. If you want an example, look at the way that he interacted with the leper as he's coming off of this massive high of teaching all these people and he's got crowds around him and he sees this guy and rather than just walking right by, he stops. He looks the man in his eyes. He listens to his needs. He reaches out and gives him the very thing that he needs. When Jesus... I mean, there's so many examples of them that are completely flying my brain right now that I'm not... But, but let me give you one more. Matthew chapter 20. We read in chapter 20, verse 29 of Matthew, that as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, again, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted... Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. Well, Jesus has got his entourage around him. They're going, okay, guys, hold on a second. Do you realize who this is? This is Jesus. Okay? Who are you? You're nobody. A couple of blind beggars. 
You think he has time for you? Please be quiet. Please stop making a ruckus. Please stop interrupting him. He's got better, more important things to do. Verse 31, the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped. Because yet again, he was interruptible. The crowds around him didn't think he had time, but he always made time. So Jesus stopped and called to them, what is it that you want me to do? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Then Jesus had compassion on them and he touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight and they followed him. Time and time again, we see Jesus stopping what he's doing to help a hurting person in his midst. In fact, the very story that he gave the man that we looked at a month ago when he said, okay, what's the most important law there is? What's the meaning of life? What am I here for? He said, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, who's my neighbor? The very story that he gave him was an illustration of the importance of being interruptible. Two men, a priest and a Levite, see the guy, but they had no time for him. They walked right on by. They were busy. And they let their busyness impede them from being able to help him. One guy, a Samaritan, sees the guy. And he was busy too, probably. He had places to be. But he saw this man and he said, that takes precedent over where I need to be. And he was interruptible. And Jesus said, this is how you love your neighbor. Again, I think back to that night when I'm sitting at Kaiser Anaheim and I think about the fact that at 10.30 at night this pastor who doesn't really know me I guarantee you he had things he had to do the next day and he could have very easily said you know what there's other people that are closer to Eric and Kathy I'm sure that they will reach out to him you know what I'm going to put a like on here I'm I'm just going to write a little comment praying for you I'm good. I can go back to bed. But God, when God tapped him on the heart and said, that one right there, he answered the call. He got dressed. He got in the car. He drove there. And that has made all the difference in my life in that moment. And guys, we are busy. There's no question about it. My, my hope for us is that we would be interruptible. That we would be going slow enough in our life that we would actually be able to see the people around us. That we would take the time to actually look people in the eyes, which is ironic for me because I I typically am like kind of a little zoned out when I'm thinking because I'm more stuck in my head than I am actually looking in the eyes. And right now I'm going, okay, I should probably practice what I'm preaching right now. Hi. Right? Looking people in the eyes and saying, what's going on around me? And then being flexible in our lives enough to say, yeah, I have places to be and things to do. But I'm not going to let the urgent keep me from the important. So we've looked at three tangible ways. And there are hundreds of others. But these are three ways that we, as the people of God, can love the lonely in our midst.
We love through physical touch. I'd encourage you to give somebody a hug today. We love through being present and listening. Giving somebody the space to be in process, not judging them in what they're saying, not trying to determine whether or not they should be feeling this, just allowing them to feel what they're feeling and giving them space to process. And then we love by being interruptible. God has invited us to be his hands and feet to a hurting world, to be his ambassadors of hope and reconciliation to a people who feel overwhelmed by life and quite often very lonely. I'm going to invite Pete and the worship team to come up right now. I have one last thought. I would be remiss if I did not recognize the fact that we've been talking about people out there, but there are probably people in here this morning who are going, if I'm real honest with myself, I'm pretty lonely. I feel pretty isolated. I may come here, but I'm not really known. And I, I just want to remind you again, and I, I want to try to avoid as much as possible empty Christian platitude here. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you have chosen to come and spend a, a morning with us. And my prayer is that you would recognize that we're just like you. Amen. <laughs> that, that we too are imperfect, that we are in process, that oftentimes, I'll be the first to say, I, insecurity, feelings of isolation, feelings that I'm not enough, all those kind of things, uh, constantly. And I want to thank you for being here and I want to encourage you to give voice to those things. When I used to walk through the quad hoping that somebody would cry out for me, sometimes they wouldn't. And in times like that, that was when I felt most alone. And the encouragement I would have for you is please don't stay silent. Please take a posture that these blind beggars took of saying, I don't care what other people say about me. I don't care if other people are telling me, don't bother. Because nobody cares, nobody has the time, nobody notices. Maybe it's you. Maybe the people, the crowds that are telling you to be quiet are actually internal voices saying, nobody cares. Everybody's too busy. Everybody's got other things. You don't want to be an imposition not really that big a deal. But if we never let people in, then people can never join us in carrying our burdens. And let's go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where we started this morning. We have not been created to be isolated. We have not been created to live as autonomous creatures who don't need other people. We have been created for relationship. It is not good that we are alone. So if you've been isolating, my encouragement to you 
is pick one person or a couple of people and get honest with them. Maybe make a phone call to somebody to say, I just wanted to talk. I was kind of feeling a little lonely. And then one last thought, and I'm sorry because I invited you up here and now I'm just making you stand. <sighs> um, we have a God who has experienced loneliness for us. Because the gospel message is a message that uh, the, is a reminder that the God of the universe took on human flesh, came to earth, and ultimately hung on a cross for people who were cursing him, laughing at him, spitting at him, and saying, if you really are the Son of God, then come down and prove it. And he hung on that cross for them. And he bled out for them and for us. He took our sins upon himself. And as he did that, not only did he feel isolated from the very people he came to care for and to die for, but he felt isolated from his God. Because as he took his sins upon us, the Father in heaven could not even look upon him. It grieved him so much to see the sins of the world caked upon him. And God turned away as he hung on that cross and Jesus' words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, are a cry of loneliness. Because our Lord and our Savior endured that loneliness, that separation, that anxiety, so that we don't have to. So that sinners like us could come to our Father imperfections and all and say here I am use me use me to help love somebody else fill me up with your love so that I can impart it to another hurting soul and guys you do not have to try to do this on your own my prayer would be that you would accept the gift that Jesus paid his life for you and all you have to do is to acknowledge that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus died for you and then confess your need for him. Jesus, come into my life. Come and begin to, 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 to fix the stuff that's broken in me. I want you to be not only my Savior, but my Lord of my life. Show me how to live and I pray that you would do in me what I can't do by my own strength and effort. And if at some point you pray that prayer, whether it's today or weeks from now, don't keep that a secret. Tell somebody. Tell me. Tell somebody in the church. Tell a friend that can be trusted with it. Because we were not created to walk alone. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you uh, for this reminder of your love for us and then the ways that you then turn us back after you have filled us up, you turn us back and you say, now go and be an extension of my arms to hurting and lonely people. And God, this morning, I pray that you would place one or two people on our heart. I pray that you would make it abundantly clear 
I, I pray that you would give us the eyes to see the lonely around us. And then I ask that you would prompt our heart this week as we go out from here, even as we kind of close in a song and then begin to move out of here, would you give us the eyes to see and wisdom to know how to come alongside other people and show them that I see you and I love you and you are not alone. Would you use us as an extension of your loving, healing hands? Jesus, for your name's sake. Amen. You guys, there's going to be elders and their wives are going to kind of move around the room. If you want prayer for anything, if you just want to come up and kneel as we, we kind of have one more song here and then...